Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Indian Religions, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar. On more about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Sam Wright, who's a visiting professor in the Department of Arts and Sciences at Ahmedabad University. We're speaking about a brand new, um, exciting book called A Time of Novelty, Logic, Emotion, and Intellectual Life in Early Modern India. 1500 to 1700. It's a brand new 2021 OUP publication. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be to be here. Now, from what I understand, um, you've listened to the podcast a fair bit. Yes, I, I, I suppose I'm a regular listener and I enjoy uh, all the various conversations that you put out there. Well, that's that's great. great. They're, they're, they're pitched to the interested public member in, in terms of, you know, public education. And I'll, and I'll, I always wonder, you know, how do how do our colleagues stay stimulated? <laughs> the questions are so, <laughs> so what's your book about? <laughs> so, <laughs> but nevertheless, many of our colleagues listen, which is which is fantastic, actually. Oh, it's always an enjoyable experience to to listen to the podcast. Great. So um, this book is uh, fascinating. I mean, we've covered a number of fascinating books, but this strikes me. Uh, it's it, I'm in a different subfield, obviously, but this strikes me as a major uh, innovation or intervention in your subfield. Would you agree with that assessment? Um, I suppose, I, I, um, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to put into conversation two, uh, two aspects here. One is the Nyaya philosophy, uh, and on the other hand, history of emotions. Uh, and, you know, that comes out of um, uh, a longer interest of mine uh, that I've had since through, through graduate school on, on what it really means to put philosophy and history into conversation. And so, yes, I mean, I, I've, I've been trying, was trying to in this book to, to place them into conversation, to think about um, what it means for emotion to uh, um, or play a role in uh, knowledge formation, uh, the meaning of knowledge. And so, so, yes, I've been was trying to do those, uh, those kind of things in the book. So you mentioned Nyaya. Your book is about a particular uh, juncture in the history of Nyaya. And Nyaya, for those of you listening, many may be already be aware, may already be aware, is one of the uh, the, the classical six astika um, um, philosophical schools of ancient India. So, how would you characterize Nyaya? Uh, sure. Well, uh, let me just maybe I just give a sort of standard overview. Uh, you know, Nyaya is presented as one of the six schools of Indian philosophy. Um, and we can think of it, I suppose, we could gloss it as logic epistemology, uh, uh, but it, uh, it's, it's, uh, its um, foundational text, it's Mula Granta, is the Nyaya Sutra. Um, and that text uh, has come down to us through anonymous redactors, probably between 200 to 450 of the common era. 
Um, and it's, it's a, a system of thought that's concerned with large questions, what exists, um, how do we know, um, uh, and uh, one characteristic uh, or one definition even of it um, that's been put forward is the examination of objects, examination of things through the valid means of cognition, that's to say the accepted ways in the system of thought through which we uh, correctly make sense of the world. Um, and uh, you know, from those early centuries of the common era, up really up until the 19th century, I would say, uh, there's a, a you know there's a, just a very large corpus of texts from commentaries, sub-commentaries, um, independent treatises, um, and uh, there's major figures in the discipline Udayana from around 10th 11th century, Gangesha from the early 14th century. Uh, Raghunata Shiromani um, from early uh, 16th century uh, in Navadvip, who a figure who I look at extensively in the book. Um, so Nyaya really has emerged uh, out of a large debate context in pre-colonial India, um, debates with Mimamsa, with uh, Indian Buddhists. Uh, and um, of course, in the early modern period that I'm looking at, um, you also have the development of a strong uh, Persian and Arabic uh, logic, um, and uh, even though uh, it doesn't seem to me that Nyaya philosophers engaged with the engage with Persian logic, um, uh, that's, that's part of the context in which which they're writing in. Um, so there's there's a lot of uh, things more I, I suppose I could say, but um, you know there's it's it's a system of knowledge looking at. Um, again, what exists, what the meaning of knowledge, how do we gain knowledge, those kind of things. So what sources do you look at for your book? What's your data? Yeah, so this was, um, <clears throat> this was actually is a good question because it, it was a bit of a, a, a sticking point for me early on. Um, because, um, you know, <clears throat> the amount of, uh, of works in Yaya for this period for, that I'm looking at, 16th and 17th century, um, it's really quite large. Uh, and um, there's that question of, well, how am I going to enter into such a large corpus of material? Um, uh, so for example, um, in this, these two centuries I'm looking at, um, according to my estimates, we have about 280 works by about 52 authors. And uh, we have about 4,800 surviving manuscripts. So there's a lot one could dive into. Uh, and I look at this manuscript culture in the book in uh, chapter five. Um, but as I look closely at this archive, um, <clears throat> I noticed that uh, there were a fair amount of works that could be, really can be classified as essays, short essays. Um, the, they're called vadas or vicharas. Uh, and these seem to me immediately to be a bit more manageable. Uh, they're quite short texts, um, and they're very much to the point. I mean, they, they announce their topic really within the first uh, few sentences. <clears throat> um, and I, I found them interesting also uh, because at the time when I was trying to put this book together, and it, it comes out of my PhD dissertation, um, so out of, uh, when, at that time, I was very taken with the, the Morellian method uh, named after Giovanni Morelli uh, from the late 19th century. Um, this uh, method was addressed by Carlo Ginzburg uh, 
when he talks about the evidential paradigm in the humanities. And for uh, Morelli, the, he had this idea that what tells us most about some object of inquiry, um, uh, and he was interested in artwork, what tells us the most are the details, um, those areas in, a, in an object that are least, influ least influenced by one's training, or one's school of thought or affiliation. So he was interested in, in the in how people painted earlobes, for example, or fingernails. So I thought that very much that these essays were, so maybe I could read them like that, sort of like the fingernails, the earlobes of the, the, this, uh, the, the discipline. Um, and uh, it would allow me to, I thought at the time, to, to address the, the peculiar concerns of philosophers uh, that uh, then would allow me perhaps to address better this question of um, questions that I was interested in about the, the role of emotion, for example. Um, and so these materials also haven't, hadn't been looked at much. So I, that was another reason that I, that I, I took them up. So these, um, these compositions, these vadas, these, these essays, as it were, can you say a little bit about you know, as much as we can know um, um, how they circulated or, or who they were written for? Is this comparable for example, to modern academic papers and whether it's Purana studies or, or uh, Nyaya studies, where is it be, were they written for other uh, exegetes and scholars or do we have a sense of how they functioned? Um, it's, it's a little hard to answer that question. I mean, we have to make some sort of guesswork. Um, it definitely seems they're, they're definitely specialized texts um, and <clears throat> probably some of them emerged out of the student teacher conversations where um, a teacher uh, wanted a student to engage specifically with the topic. Um, uh, some of them um, were part of larger works and uh, they uh, sort of became disassociated from those larger works and circulated uh, as small uh, sections. So maybe only uh, three or four folia. Um, uh, and, uh, but uh, in terms of their circulation, I mean, yes, they, they did circulate very widely throughout uh, South Asia. Uh, and in fact, I, I do look at this uh, in, in the book uh, and thinking about how um, these manuscripts uh, circulated in just such huge numbers uh, and uh, through a large number of towns and various scripts uh, across South Asia. Um, and uh, part of why I, I wanted to look at these uh, manuscripts, uh, the, especially these vadas, uh, uh, and how they spread across um, the region, let's uh, say across South Asia, uh, is because I was, I was interested in the role of, or the place of Bengal uh, in this larger discussion. So, um, through, 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 so my book is, also makes a claim that um, Bengal was the sort of essential place of the discipline at this time. And so a lot of the works coming out of Bengal uh, uh, were in sort of in high demand, you might say, through this uh, manuscript uh, economy. Uh, and it's through this, these linkages across the various regions uh, uh, as expressed in the circulation of manuscripts that the Nyaya intellectual space uh, is sort of constituted and the uh, Nyaya philosophers see themselves as part of a pan-regional intellectual space. So. Thank you for the yeah. conjecture. Thank you. Um, 
The book's called A Time of Novelty. Now we know what time this is, and we know what what um, <laughs> um, um, what we know what um, school this is. Novelty. Why is this a time of novelty? <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is a, this is a good question. <laughs> so. Um, I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, what you know? So I I, I try to trace. Uh, well, let me just back up and, and say a little bit here that. Uh, you know, um, when we when we look at uh, early modern India, there are of course many uh, many uh, philosophical communities uh, at this time. The Mamsa Vedanta, Bhakti, um, as I mentioned, the Persian Arabic philosophy, uh, and so um, uh, if we look at the discipline, of, you know, of course, I'm interested in Nyayashastra, but when we look at that discipline in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, a lot of these philosophers are employing periodizing terms like new, uh, so say navya, or old, prachina. Uh, and these, these terms are, of course, quel- quite well known, and they've been discussed in the discipline. Um, previous scholars like Janard and Ganeri or Sheldon Pollock have argued that these terms indicate a new way of thinking or a new orientation to one's tradition of thought. Uh, the argument being that novelty or this newness is at the center of their philosophical project. Um, but I'm, I, you know, in the book, I was wanting to sort of explore this further. What is it? What would it? What does it mean to 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 state that? Uh, and so, um, overall, then my, my my book is really trying to query that question. It's a long argument uh, on how Nyaya philosophers acted on and behalf of and cared for uh, novelty when reading and writing and debating. Uh, and this leads me to make, I guess, a, sort of a, some large claims. Um, so if we consider uh, a claim by, by uh, these some Nyaya philosophers about a new position, a new conclusion, um, and there's, there's a few um, subjects that I chart in the book, um, they might be uh, claims about the ontological status of the objectivity relation, this vishayata, or it might be a new definition of doubt, for example, or it might be uh, the claim that uh, there is, uh, that happiness exists in Ishvara. But these are all um, labeled as new positions. There's a debate around them. Um, and so my, my argument is that when we, when we think about how those claims are put forward, um, there has to be sort of a purpose uh, behind them. Um, there has to be sort of, there has to be um, an object or some sort of communicative force that allows a reader uh, to direct their attention to an object. Uh, it's when they're reading claims about the new authors say X or the new authors uh, say Y. So what I'm what I'm 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 thinking then about is uh, there is about how certain objects emerge out of the claim that something is new. So what am I really saying here? I'm I'm trying to uh, I in the book I end up uh, using um, uh, David Shulman's uh, arguments on the power of imagination. So for Shulman, um, who who reads philosophical and literary texts of South Asia to make his, his argument. Imagination is able to bring some object from a potential existence into an actual existence. And it does this through a generative process um, based on an initial 
sense perception uh, and that intensifies, that initial experience can intensify when we um, uh, sort of care for, do we cast our attention onto it to such an extent that it can uh, alter reality. So I, I argue that when the term new, when that term new is uh, heard or read in a text or debated, uh, it actually transcends this initial activity of reading it or hearing it in a debate and forms the basis of a generative process in the context of Nyaya. And that sort of makes, in this process, this makes real uh, and, and, and makes nameable a certain object. That's to say, it makes real and makes nameable these Navyas as new philosophers. And so when they're recognizing novelty, that's to say, uh, recognizing specific instances of the new within these philosophical texts, um, that recognition is a process of a care-filled and imaginative process whereby a community is brought into being. But to get to your, sort of come all the way back to your question of what, what is this a time of novelty? What are we talking about here? I, I, I think that uh, unlike our modern biases, um, this is not a time of novelty in which the new sort of replaces the old, but it's a moment when the new and old sort of coexist together, uh, they're co-eval. And that's what I, I term a synchronic novelty, um, where the new emerges along with the old, and indeed the old can't, you know, can't exist before the new. Uh, so there's um, uh, this synchronic novelty is what, I, is that what I'm arguing is really the form of novelty that we see expressed here in this period in 16th and 17th century by Nyaya philosophers. And I, I suppose we could make an even larger claim that uh, that perhaps synchronic novelty is the form of novelty expressed across the history of philosophy. So, um, The idea that the new in this context, you know, consciously new referred to as novia, the idea that it is, um, it is examined in concert with the old, um, that idea resonates because, you know, um, the, the, the Hinduism house is continually renovated, never demolished, right? Uh, this is just the, the texture of the tradition and part of why it's so difficult to define and part of why it's been alive for so long because we never, you know, it never gets, it doesn't get rid of anything. <laughs> we'll take that too. Great. Add that on. <laughs> why not? Um, sure. so, so, yeah. Please go ahead. No, I, I was just saying that, I mean, uh, just to sort of fully, maybe even more fully answer your question. Uh, we do see that would cases, be nice. We, I mean, we do see cases where what is being argued as new is actually not new. It's sort of repackaged, and as there's a new philosophical history argued for a certain term, and that's also quite fascinating. And at this moment, that sort of these minor tangential, these minor views that have existed perhaps in the in the tradition prior to this period are are uh, reanimated and given. This ascribed a newness when, in fact, they're quite they're quite an old uh, positions. So that's also an interesting part of the way in which newness is expressed in this period. And why is this being done? Why is this being done? Yes, <laughs> I mean my my answer in the book is that uh, the why somebody like um, Gadadhar Bhattacharya or his teacher Hari Rama Tarkavagisha would do this, and that and they, they do this specifically in the case of Vishayata, uh, this objectivity relation, um, which is how how the external objects in the world actually link to our 
internal cognitions of them. Um, <clears throat> I think the, the purpose here, why this is being done is to narrativize a philosophical reality so that the new is presented as the now of Nyaya philosophical history is sort of re re creating a culmination of the new into this moment, into this into this the now of Nyaya philosophical history and allows even if we take it further, very intimate relations with readers of their work or with those who are debating their work. Um, so if, if everyone is sort of coming along with Gadadar and Harirama and accepting this newness, this new view, then they also accept that uh, the new contains a specific version of philosophical reality. And then it helps to coalesce a community around certain uh, intellectual commitments uh, and certain emotional commitments at the same time. Uh, the last thing you, you mentioned was going to be my next question. What does emotion have to do with this newness? So, like, or, or, or what does this newness have to do with emotion? You know, what is the role of emotion? Why is this so important? Right. Well, I mean, <clears throat> this is, I mean, I, th I think, you know, I mean, first I should, I should say that I think history of emotion is, is a powerful lens uh, when brought into conversation with pre-colonial intellectual history of South Asia. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, we don't have much work in it, I suppose, uh, for the pre-colonial period, but uh, uh, in the colonial, for colonial India, for example, uh, Margaret Panel's work was uh, influential for how I uh, thought about um, the, uh, framing my own thinking around uh, the role of emotion here. Um, and uh, it was important for me because I, I think that while emotion is the activity of our, our inner life, right? And that's the definition that I'm, I'm taking from Jagannatha Panditaraja uh, from mid 17th century Banaras. <clears throat> but I, I wanted to try to bring emotion out into the philosophical world as to say, that it had a large role to play in knowledge creation. Uh, and uh, so I, I should say that this is why I, I use the phrase in the book, affective novelty, um, as a counterpart to intellectual novelty. So affective novelty is the collection of emotional practices uh, that occur alongside the, uh, the new, uh, along with this new knowledge. Um, and it, it really is used there to, to stress that um, the, the dynamic ways in which um, philosophers created planned relations with the philosophical world. Um, so um, I think that that's the, to the role of emotion that I'm trying to, to bring out in the book. How did you get interested in this subfield? How, 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 you know, whereby did you bring these two into conversation? Um, I, you know, it's, I suppose it's hard to sort of pinpoint an answer to that question or, or sort of a moment. I mean, I'm, I mean, the project emerged out of a long process through uh, my graduate work. Um, and, uh, I, and I knew f early on that I wanted to work on Nyaya in this period, in this 16th and 17th century. Um, uh, actually, it's, it's funny, right before I was going into graduate school thinking about Nyaya, my, my brother gave me a, uh, a book 
that had an essay in it by Quinton Skinner, his well-known essay, uh, Meaning and Understanding in the History of Ideas. And I became very influenced by this essay about how, you know, what does it mean to uh, read philosophy and history together? How do they overlap? Uh, and uh, that's why in the book, for example, I, I tried to draw on a fair amount of um, historical documents uh, and uh, secondary sources in, in Bengali, um, because as Bengal is really the, the premier intellectual center of Navya, uh, of uh, Nyaya Shastra here in this, at this moment, more so even than Benares, there's a lot of writing on Nyaya in Bengali and some important primary sources. So I, I had always had this interest in connecting Nyaya philosophy with a historical context. I just wasn't quite sure um, how that would sort of work out, uh, what, <laughs> what direction uh, that would take. Uh, and so I, I, I do have to admit, it took me a while to realize that what I really wanted to do uh, was to think about the place uh, of emotion in the way it was constitutive to the meaning of uh, Nyaya philosophical knowledge. And, and that's sort of what I wanted to explore. Uh, and uh, so it sort of just sort of snowballed from there when after I, I started thinking about it uh, because, uh, well, uh, maybe I'll just stop, pause there, but uh, that was- oh, That's uh, fine. You can yeah, continue uh, if you like. Okay. No, um, yeah, yeah. Please do, go ahead. <laughs> okay, thanks Raj. Um, <clears throat> no, I mean, I, you know, I, I, as I said, I was very interested in uh, Quentin Skinner's work and things and this contextualist reading of, of uh, philosophy. Uh, but I, I had always uh, maintained a sort of ambivalence that uh, philosophy would be reduced or was potentially reduced to uh, its economic or social context, et cetera. Um, and what I found fascinating about emotion was that I, I found it to be, uh, while it was in another context, um, it it didn't abstract from the text. It, I felt that it, it 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 brought a context of the sort of lived experience of these Nyaya philosophers, and so uh, was a, a context that was not adjunctive to the text, but really constitutive to its meaning. And uh, so that that idea sort of interested me, and uh, that's what I guess I, I tried to explore in the book more. You mentioned David Schulman in passing, and uh, in my view, one of the reasons why his writing is so captivating, I mean, there, there are a number of reasons why writing is captivating. I mean, certainly there's a command of language, there's a lucidity of turns of phrase, but um, scholars like he write, or they craft their arguments in such a way that, um, that they're always aware of the human experience. They, they never quarantine intellectual realm from other parts of self because we are we are wholes um while we have perhaps physical bodies intellectual mm -hmm. bodies um, emotional bodies spiritual bodies we're wholes and so um i think when when one is able to acknowledge and discern other dimensions of self in sound intellectual work it makes that work all the more captivating in my view mm -hmm. Yeah, I would 100% uh, agree on that. And uh, I mean, really, that was uh, part of the you know, fascination for writing this book, was thinking about 
you know, okay, well, the, the Nyaya philosophers are arguing for a certain a view on doubt, uh, but what, how is that going to then bring us into this, or try to address this question of what, what does it mean to be a Nyaya philosopher at this moment? What does it mean to be uh, why does it matter? Why should we why, care? Yes. Why does anybody yeah. care? Yeah. Scholars toil to produce their works. And mm-hmm. this is the this is the link. Why should we care about this book? Why mm-hmm. should we care about this research? Not to imply that that there is no reason to care about it, but to prompt folks to bring to the fore why this is important, whether they realize it or not. Yeah. So, so, so that important, you know, there's a saying that comes to mind and I keep it in mind, especially when I'm teaching undergrads. Um, nobody cares how much you know, unless they know how much you care. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I mean, that was, that. I, I like that a lot. I mean, that was, I, you know, that was really, that kind of framing, I, I think also really carried, uh, carried, was carried with me in through writing this book, uh, because, you know, writing on Yaya, you, you can end up feeling like you're sort of in this cold technical world, right, and uh, it's really, you're, a, you're a bot, you're, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because uh, a lot of the, a lot of times the 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 language is, is feels right at the limits of ordinary language. It becomes very artificial language at times, feeling like that. Um, but I, I I always wanted to maintain this um, perspective that you know philosophy and the ideas uh, discussed can be made part of the narrative of our lives, you know, made to fashion our world in some way. And so even in this cold climate of Nyaya, I wanted to uh, bring that uh, discussion to the fore uh, as well. And uh, this perspective on emotion uh, helped me to do that. Well, certainly, however, and, and you well know I'm, I'm not in your subfield. I, I, I work on the lowly piranhas. <laughs> but, um, um, however we interpret what Navia or what this newness, this very self-conscious newness is, however we interpret philosophically, clearly as human beings, there would be some sort of excitement, sense of adventure. There would be some sort of emotionality around. This is the, this is you know Nyaya two point You know this is, this is. There would have been. Um, that's this is more than the slicing and dicing of ideas, right? Or epistemological claims. This has to do with identity formation. This has to do with being conscious of your moment in history, right? In relation to tradition, however you define that. So, so this is an important word, right? Yeah. Um, tell us how the book's structured for those who are considering getting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the book. I mean, I suppose it has the six chapters there: uh, intro and conclusion. Uh, and I actually, I, there's, there's quite a long appendix also, uh, because, uh, well, that, which comes out of chapter five, where I try to, you know, after working through some of the sort of nitty gritty of some of the ideas and things, I, I, I want to come back and ask a broader question about how we think about Nyaya intellectual space. That's to say space across all of South, South Asia, because the, the manuscript, culture uh, and production is seen all across um, South Asia. So um, 
the uh, the chapter five then contains some maps and things that uh, uh, where I have worked through uh, a variety of uh, surveys that list the fine spot of of the manuscripts that they have uh, surveyed. Uh, and a lot of these are colonial artifacts, these surveys. So they're coming from 1860s, 1880s. Uh, so they're, they're a bit later than actually the period I'm looking at, but I, I can't get earlier than that. Um, and uh, so the, the maps uh, show to the reader where the, this spread of manuscripts uh, uh, occurs across South Asia and the appendix includes um, the, the, the authors and things uh, and the location of those, where those texts, uh, where those manuscripts are according to author. Uh, <clears throat> so in that sense, the, the book really, I start with trying to think about uh, the relationship um, between um, the argument for newness and the ways in which that argument, those arguments for newness or new conclusions, or novel positions, uh, brings about a cohesiveness of, a, of philosophers. Not all Nyaya philosophers adhere to new positions. Uh, some make ar ar new arguments more than others. And so I'm, I'm trying to think about how the, the community sort of forms on the basis of certain arguments. Uh, and the, sort of the second section of the book is looking at um, how then Nyaya philosophers, uh, really how they read space or read their places through emotions. I'm looking at Bengal, particularly Navadvip, uh, which is the major intellectual center there. Um, uh, and in the, in, the, in the final section, I'm looking at space and time, thinking about, again, this spread of manuscript culture in, in chapter five and chapter six, thinking about, um, the how uh, the how newness uh, contains a a temporal history or a uh, a narrative of philosophical history uh, that we can maybe unpack a bit more. So that's sort of a very broad 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 brushstrokes uh, for how the book is structured. That's sort of what we do here on the podcast, the, the 30,000 foot view, you know, anyone who wants to, you know, um, and jump out and parachute down, they're welcome to, but we, we're we looking at the, the broad strokes. Um, um, who's the book for? Who might be most interested in reading the book? Well, uh, I mean, I thought if you're, of course, if you're interested in Nyaya Shastra, this would be uh, a book to look at. Um, or Indian philosophy, Indian philosophy uh, in general. Uh, I try to, to speak to broad concerns there. Um, uh, again, if you're interested in how the history of emotions could be used to uh, think through uh, um, its connection to uh, intellectual contexts, um, uh, you we would find the book interesting, I hope. <laughs> uh, and uh, just in general um, about uh, the various contexts that one finds in early modern India related to engagements with Banaras and Kashi as a place of spiritual liberation it takes up a long chapter, chapter four. Uh, so there's uh, um, questions around uh, religious, uh, religious studies there, religious history. Um, so, 
I, I maybe I'll just say one more th another thing, Rod. About this. Um, yeah. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> you know, I, it, this is again a, another very broad point about the book, and I, but I think it's you know, it's an important point to make, um, which is that I you know the title is a time of novelty, and I, I'm very serious about it's a time of novelty. It's not the time of novelty. I think that's important to stress. Um, and the distinction is important for me because uh, I'm not claiming in the book that this is the first time that periodization in the discipline of Nyaya takes place or that it's the first time that terms like Navya, et cetera, Prachina are used. Um, periodizing terms were used by Gangesha in the early 14th century, uh, who was based in Vitala uh, and probably and also before that. Um, so uh, what I'm, I'm saying here is that, and what I argue in the book, that there are potentially many multiple times of novelty in Nyaya Shastra or in other uh, intellectual disciplines. Um, but each time of novelty would require its own historical and philosophical treatment or excavation, if you will. Um, what makes the 16th and 17th century a time of novelty uh, will not be the same as what makes the 14th uh, century a time of novelty. So um, that framework, that frame um, informs how I'm writing in the book. Um, I'm not seeing it as some, some sort of culmination into a novel moment, but rather investigating um, how the new is constituted in this period uh, without, uh, without assuming a, a teleology to that novelty. Fascinating. Um, was there anything else about the book that you hoped we would touch on? Um, well, we've covered, I feel like we've covered a fair amount. Um, Mission accomplished. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, it was, it was, it was a, a pleasure and a, to write, but also very challenging sometimes. So, but, uh, you know, I'm glad it's, it's just wonderful to be able to speak with you about it. And to... well, birthings are painful, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but 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 fruitful and and worth it. And it was a pleasure speaking with you as well. I'm glad you've heard the podcast before, so you you knew what you were getting into. You didn't require too much priming <laughs> or cajoling. <laughs> no, I, I was I was very happy to speak, and uh, it's really is it's, it's a pleasure to to meet you and to to be able to chat about the book. And I, I look forward to listening to uh, the, the additional podcasts that you that you put out. Yes, likewise, it was a pleasure. Just uh, for my own curiosity, is this something? This is an area that you are continuing to research. Um, you know, I don't think I'll ever get Nyaya Shastra out of my brain. System. I think it, it'll be out of my system. It'll be something that I. You have an emotional attachment to Nyaya. <laughs> yes, I, I do definitely, definitely for good or for bad. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in sort of expanding a little bit on, on chapter two, the, the, the way in which they're theorizing this connection between mind and world is something that's fascinating me still. And I want to maybe work on that a bit more. Um, I am also interested in um, you know, how Nyaya philosophy might be able to speak to the climate crisis. And that's kind of a uh, an ongoing interest of mine, but I'm, I'm not really sure how I would frame it yet. Uh, but 
I'm, it's interesting to me to try to be able to recover uh, philosophical ideas uh, from the modern period and see in what ways they might be able to help answer questions that we have today about pressing problems that we're grappling with. Excellent. Um, what comes to mind regarding your interest in, 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 in harnessing your research for the climate question, climate crisis? If I'm not mistaken, there is a proposed topic um, for the upcoming AAR. It's one of the, it might be the Hinduism unit, or it might be the Sari, the newly named Risa's now Sari unit. Um, and they're looking for proposals, if I'm not mistaken. So perhaps you can submit. In either case, I suspect we will speak again one way or another. That would be great. Uh, yeah, I would really look forward to that. Great. Thank you for appearing on the podcast. Thank you so much, Raj. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Samuel Wright, who's visiting assistant professor at Ahmedabad University. We've been speaking with him about his brand new OEP uh, monograph, A Time of Novelty, Logic, Emotion, and Intellectual Life in Early Modern India. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating the marriage of emotion and logic. Take care.